through 28. We're going to read it all today, so we'll be here for an hour and a half. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to be in Matthew 26, 27, a little bit of 28, um, but just kind of hold your place there. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, I'm going to ask a very, very important question today. It's definitely Easter-centric. What, why, why is a centerpiece so important? Can somebody tell me? Why is a centerpiece so important? Anybody know what a centerpiece is? Yeah, like for a table or whatever. Everything's built around it. Everything's built around it. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? Why is this? What? Draws a focus. Anything else? What? It's pretty. Very good. Anybody? Makes everything perfect, except for if it's a bad centerpiece. I don't make bad centerpieces. I'm going to leave that one alone. Anybody else? Sets the tone. Sets the tone. That's good. What else? It's most important. All right. Do we have a couple counseling right now? All right. I, just, I mean, yeah. You couldn't afford. Oh. Uh, now, typically, when we think of centerpieces, we think of something decorative, obviously. Most of us probably have a centerpiece in our home somewhere. Uh, the focal point, for some of us, is the TV. It's the centerpiece of our house. We've dec- decorated and designed that. But today, we're going to talk about the most important centerpiece in history, the centerpiece of history. And what I'm talking about and what I'm referring to is the cross. You see, there is a centerpiece of all of history that stands out. The cross is the centerpiece of history and the determinant for our eternity. E. Stanley Jones said this, The cross is the key. Listen to this. If I lose the key, I fumble. The universe will not open up to me, but with this key in my hand, I know I hold its secret. You know, many understand that have been in church or in church today, they understand the importance of the cross. But I dare say, honestly, there are a lot of us, even Christians, that don't fully understand the full scope of the cross. You know, I've had the opportunity to preach several Easter-centric sermons, and every year that I study for this, uh, I try to get something fresh and new, but every year, even though I've read this story countless times, God gives me something new each time, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for His Word, and even though you might have read the Bible a hundred times, you can still learn something new each and every time you read it. And even in the story of Easter, the story of Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection, He is still teaching me things each and every day and each and every year. But one thing that stands out to me when you think about Easter, I think there's many words that come to our mind and when we think about the resurrection. But one word specifically comes to my mind, and we sang about it earlier today, is hope. Because of Easter, we have hope. And really, when you go a little bit deeper, without death... There is no hope. And what I'm talking about is that without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no hope for any of us. Jesus had to die for all of us to have a chance at eternity. And to understand the cross, we must better understand God. And to better understand God, we have to understand His character. And I want to give you a couple things quickly. If you're taking notes, you can. That's fine. If not, they'll be up there on the screen. But there are so many aspects of God's character that are on full display as you study God's Word and you study the Bible. And there's four specific things that I want us to look at in relation to His character. And what I'm talking about with these, these are things that I've mentioned many times before in my preaching, but with these four characteristics, we have to see ourselves in there as well. 
Because to truly understand God, we have to also try to understand ourselves. Once we understand and see God for who he is, then we can better see ourselves for who we are. And these four characteristics are important. God, just throw all of them up at the same time. The four characteristics, and I'll talk about them, are God's sovereignty, his righteousness, his wrath, and his love. His sovereignty, his righteousness, his wrath, and his love. To understand God's sovereignty is a very important thing. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he has all authority. All authority has been given to him. The Bible says in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all that live in it, the inhabitants in the earth are his. Verse 2 tells us that God founded it. He established it upon the rivers and the streams and the seas. You see, God has outright control over everything. That's important. We need to understand that first and foremost, that God has outright control over everything. But then there's something else we need to understand. We have denounced his sovereignty. Here's what I mean. We understand the word. We understand that God is truly sovereign. He is truly in control of all things. But again, how many times do we try to usurp that authority? Do we try to put ourselves in control of something that we have no business being in control of? Anybody ever struggle with that? Yes, many of us, myself included, I struggle with that control factor. God is in control. God is sovereign above all. But the problem is that we have denounced his sovereignty by doing whatever we want. And again, those of us that have kids, we understand that. Your kids do whatever they want, even though you tell them, countless times, stop, you spank them, you do whatever, you take away their Easter eggs, whatever, they're still going to do whatever they want. Right? Right, Julie? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Appreciate it. But the problem with us, and I, and I want us to understand this because it's going to set up the message today, we have rebelled against the holy God. That second word, righteousness, we'll just leave it up there for a minute. Righteousness, understanding God's righteousness and his character means believing that he is righteous above all. That everything that God does is right. Psalm 145, 17, the Bible says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He is holy. He is gracious. He is kind in all his works. God never has a wrong motive. Did you know that? He has never thought anything wrong. How many of us have ever had a wrong motive? Ever thought something wrong? Probably even this morning, as we were trying to get everyone ready and in perfect shape and everything like that, and straighten up for this picture right now, you know, right? I know you don't do that, but I know we do that with our kids. Hey, I'm, I'm going to... All right, never mind. Let's just keep going on. Uh, but Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous. No, not one. And we have to understand that God is righteous. He is right in all that he does, but we are not. We have wrong motives. We have a wrong heart at times. The third aspect of his character, and again, I can go so much deeper into this, but that's not the message today, his wrath. This is a characteristic that many deny or have trouble comprehending because God is holy. God is righteous. God hates sin. In the Old Testament, we see God's wrath on full display and we see it on full display in Revelation as we've studied that great book on Wednesday nights here in our church in our personal Bible study. God's wrath is real, it's personal, it's intense, it's steady, it's not irrational. But sometimes our wrath or our judgment is irrational. We blow up at things, right? Now, we need to understand that one sin against God is an infinite offense and shows infinite dishonor. 
thus making it worthy of infinite punishment. But the problem is sin has tainted our world, has tainted our eyes, has tainted our understanding. God's judgment has been questioned. God's judgment has been mocked and ridiculed because of sin. People can't understand a God that does judge because people sin, because people disobey. Well, God, He shouldn't judge the world. He should just show love and, and, and mercy and grace. Now, He does. Those are aspects of His character. But God also has to judge, just like any parent understands, that yes, you do love your kids, but when they disobey, there comes a time where they have to be punished. You see, because of sin, we have disregarded God's wrath. We have mocked His judgment. And that fourth characteristic is love. You know, the Bible is a book of love. It's God's love story for all of us. You know, God is loving towards all creation, yet we again have denied His love. We don't believe God loves us, so we've fallen away to our own will, to live out our own lives, to do what we want to do. Now again, these are just four characteristics of a holy God. And I want us to understand, and the reason I'm kind of painting the picture of God versus ourselves, because it's very important in setting up the message and really the resurrection, the resurrection story. God is a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He is sovereign. He's in control of all. He is righteous. He is a God of wrath and a God of love. But yet we have denounced, we have denied those things. And really when we study the Easter story, at least as I've studied the Easter story several times, and even in Matthew's account, the more I read it this week and over and over and just prepared for it, as Matthew was giving the list of the individuals leading up to the, the cross and the crucifixion, you know what I saw? I saw myself. I saw myself in the story. And really, that's what I want us to do today. I want us to see ourselves in the story of Easter. I want us to see ourselves in the story of the crowd of Peter, of Judas, of so many other people. And it's very easy to point out individuals, and we're going to talk about Judas here in just a minute. It's very easy to just, you know, throw all of this, this shame on, on Judas for what he did, but really, many of us are no different than Judas. Many of us are no different than Peter, who denied, who cursed the name of Jesus. Look, God has these characteristics of sovereignty, of righteousness, of wrath, of love, yet we have denounced, we have denied them. And because of that, we have to understand that we deserve a guilty verdict. We don't deserve what God has offered us. And if we're to truly grasp the wonder of the gospel, we must see that God's forgiveness of our sin, listen to this statement, it almost sounds wrong, but God's forgiveness of our sin is a threat to his character. John Stott said this, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. Nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing, if we look more deeply, is more mysterious and more difficult. You see, when we think about the cross, we mostly think that the cross was for us. And that is true, and I'm not saying, saying anything that is heretical. But the cross was also for God's sake. You see, Jesus died for us, but he also died for his Father. The gospel often is presented as an answer to human problems. And this is true, but the cross is God's answer to a divine problem. You see, Christ's death on the cross was God's vindication and declaration of His glory. It was God demonstrating His justice, His righteousness. 
In Matthew 26 and 27 specifically, Matthew gives us a glimpse of the wickedness of man on full display. And when you study this, I want us to see ourselves in this story, in these individuals. You see, the gospel is on full display. And we've been talking a lot about the gospel in our series through the book of Acts and other series that we've talked about in this church. You know, our vision statement for the church is that we exist to reach people with the radical power of the gospel. And many people say, well, the gospel is the good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is true. I have said that, but it's so much more. And really, if you want to put it into a terms that we understand even better, here's the gospel. Here's the essence of the gospel. Four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. You see, Jesus took the place that was deserved for us because of our sin, because of our disobedience. And listen, Jesus didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. We deserve to die the death that he died on that day. And what we see for the next few minutes, I want you to understand the significance here. The first thing I want us to see as we'll walk through some of these passages this morning is this. Jesus was betrayed and forsaken by me. And what I'm saying is that it's also by you. He was betrayed. He was forsaken by me, by us. Now, when you look at the story, the first one that stands out to you in verse number 14 of Matthew 26 is Judas Iscariot. The Bible says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. Hey, uh, I need a price. I'll deliver this Jesus to you, but you have to pay me something. And they, can, and they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's really not that much. Now, I've done a lot of different research and a lot of different you know, studies. And again, you, you put the equivalent to American dollar today and you get all kinds of different things. But I've, I've seen some that say it might equal to about $600. Like, that's not a lot of money, right? I mean, that's like the December stimulus payment, right? <laughs> um, $600 is not a lot of money. Now, yeah, I was thinking about this last night. Now, there's a lot of people that I would like to betray. But I would do it for a lot more than $600, right? Anybody? All right, don't, don't answer that. Um, you know, $600 is not a lot of money. And especially to give up Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So Judas went to the high priest and he went to these people and, and he made a deal with them. Hey, I'll give you Jesus, but you have to give me something. And they found this price of 30 pieces of silver. You know, we talk a lot about Judas a lot of times because of his betrayal. But do you know that Judas wasn't the only disciple that betrayed Jesus on that night? His fall was more spectacular, yes, but many other disciples fell away that night as well. But concerning Judas, I want us to start with this understanding. And really, here's where we put ourselves in this situation. Judas had a price. You think about it. His price was 30 pieces of silver. It's not a lot, but let me ask you a question. What's your price? What's your price of following Jesus or not following Jesus? What do you say? 
Pastor, I would never put a price on not following Jesus. Well, let me put it another way. What does Jesus have to do for you in order for you to follow him? You see, that's where many people live today, especially in the American culture. You know, here's my list of demands, Jesus. You fulfill these, I'll serve you. I'll worship you. So, in essence, we're similar to Judas, right? We have put a price on what it means to follow Jesus or to not follow Jesus. There have been countless people over the centuries that have stopped following him because Jesus didn't do for them what they expected him to do, right? And listen to this. I think I have a quote of this. The value you place on something, maybe I don't, I don't know, is shown by what you'll give up for it. The value you place on something is shown by what you'll give up for it. Let that, let that sink in. Just leave it up there. The value you place on something is shown by what you'll give up for it. So if you walk away from, from church, from Jesus, based on something he does or doesn't do, then that is the value that you have placed upon him. Whatever causes you to stop following Jesus is your price. And look, I'm no different. There have been times in my life where maybe for a season I didn't follow him as closely as I should have. I had a price. I, I think when I was younger and when I was a kid, you know, my, my price, and I've said it many times, was sports. I love sports. I'm thankful for sports. I'm thankful that our kids are starting to get into it. But for me, there was a price and it was sports. I didn't follow him as closely because that was my idol. That was my God. That was the price that I was willing to pay in order to serve that over Jesus. For some, it's family. For some, it's friends. For some, it's a job. The list could go on, right? There is a price. The point I'm making is that there is a price that many of us have. And I've seen it many times. And this was true for Judas. When you really think about this and study this out, Jesus alone was not enough for Judas. And for many people, Jesus alone is not enough. They want Jesus plus something, right? I'll take Jesus, but I need something else in return. Like, we're making a deal. Like, give me Jesus, but give me, give me a lot of wealth. Give me a better job, and then I'll serve Jesus. But it's not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus, and that's it. <laughs> you see, for Judas, Jesus wasn't enough. But the same is true of other disciples. Now, we're not going to read all the verses really for sake of time, but... Uh, Judas' betrayal is on full display in verses 47 through 50. But I want you to turn to the end of the chapter, towards the end of the chapter, verse number 55. Chapter 26, verse number 55. In the same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, there were people there. Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. There were many people that had sat under Jesus' teaching. Some of his followers. And you laid no hold on me then, basically is what he's saying. But look at, look at verse number 56. This is very telling. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. That's telling, isn't it? Things got tough, and what happened? The disciples forsook Jesus. 
They fled. Disciples betrayed, denied, disobeyed, scattered, and deserted Jesus. After spending maybe three years walking with Jesus, spending time with Jesus, some of his closest companions deserted him in his darkest hour. And the first thing we see is that Jesus was betrayed and forsaken, not necessarily by them, but by me. Now, the second thing I want us to see is what Jesus went through. Jesus anguished for me. He was betrayed, forsaken by me, but he, was, he anguished for me. Look back at verse number 40. You know, this is the part of the story where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying to his Father. And I want, I want to take note of just something very quickly before I go back to verse 37, 38. And he cometh to the disciples and findeth them asleep. <laughs> and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Hey, Peter, couldn't you give me one hour, bud? <laughs> I mean, just, just one hour. He's asleep. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he's praying and praying and asking his followers to keep watch, and yet every time he finds them asleep. Now, there's an important note before we go back to verse 37. This is the very first time, really, that Jesus ever truly felt alone. And the thing that stands out to me is the anguish that he went through. I want you to look back at verse number 37. We'll start there. And he took with him Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Really, this is talking about the deep anguish that Jesus is enduring. This is before the cross. Even unto death. Tarry here, stay here. Watch with me. But note those words, the sorrowful. Again, talking about the, the anguish that he is experiencing. His soul is exceedingly heavy, even unto death. Now, anguish means this, severe mental or physical pain or suffering. Now, I've studied what Jesus went through on the cross many times, and I thought I'd grasp a small sense of what he went through. But even this year, the Lord gave me something else. You know, verse 37 tells us that he was greatly distressed. That's what sorrowful means. He was in anguish as he considered the wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him as he bore the sins of the world on the cross. Verse 38 tells us the pressure of being alone almost killed him. In Luke's gospel, in verse 44 of chapter 22, he tells us that Jesus was so overwhelmed that he began to sweat drops of blood. Now, this condition is what doctors now call hematidrosis, which literally means the sweating of blood or a blood sweat. This is where there, there is such a strain, you are under such a strain, where the capillaries in your face begin to burst. So, so just, just imagine this picture, and this is where it really just even opened my eyes up even further this week. Imagine the picture as Jesus. It's not just, please let this cup pass, let this cup pass. I mean, he is, he is anguishing. He is in distress. This is before the death on the cross. His prayer is so intense that really the capillaries in his face begin to burst and it's like he's sweating drops of blood. This is what he did for you, for me. I heard of a story that kind of really helped me understand even better. There was a pastor in a church in North Carolina who told a story of 
when his three sons were younger. They had left the community pool and only two out of the three sons returned. He ran back inside and to his horror found his four-year-old son at the bottom of the pool lying motionless. He said he had jumped in and pulled him out, called 911, began performing CPR on him and thank God he was able to revive him. They got to the hospital and they told him things were going to be fine, but they wanted to keep the boy overnight for observation. The pastor said that as I was looking at my son, I noticed that he had all these little purple blotches all over his face. He'd asked the doctor what this was, and the doctor explained. He said, evidently your son, when he thought he was drowning, he was screaming for you all with such ferocity that it caused the capillaries in his face to burst. And this story just opened my eyes up even more to this passage. Here is the Son of God under such strain of soul, calling out with such intensity to God the Father to take away the cup of wrath that was about to be poured out onto him. And he experienced all of this before the crucifixion. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the past, once said this, God was letting him experience this in the garden so that we could see Jesus taste of the cross getting a taste of the isolation and rejection of the condemnation for sin. And then we see him willingly choose to go through with it. He knew exactly what he was going into. That way, we could see his love for us on full display. Hebrews 12, 2, the Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What joy did Jesus gain by enduring the cross? There's really only one thing that Jesus didn't have before the cross that he now has after the cross. That's you and me. You see, we were the joy that gave Jesus the ability to endure what he was about to endure. That gave him the strength to withstand the wrath of God being poured out on him for the sins of all mankind. So we see that Jesus anguished for me. But the third thing, Jesus was accused and sentenced for me. When you continue the narrative in verse number 63 of chapter 26, but Jesus, as he's there in the temple, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, basically, hey, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit on his face and buffeted him, and others smote him and with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Christ, who is it that smote thee? And when you read in chapter 27, verses 21 through 26, it's the account of Pilate standing before and saying, hey, I, I find no fault in this man. And the crowd is basically saying, you know what? Give us Barabbas. Give us that, that murderous wretch instead of Jesus. You see, the Jewish leaders and the high priest accused and judged the Son of God. The Jewish leaders decided to put Jesus to death. They took him to Pilate, the Roman leader, where he was sentenced for really the crimes that he did not commit. 
Jesus was accused. He was sentenced for me. We continue on. Jesus was ridiculed and beaten for me. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited the crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote it on his head. So they, they mocked him, they beat him, they spit upon him, they ridiculed him. Crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading in itself. Whether tied or nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless things that happened to their body. And as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing. But the authorities that day dealt very cruelly with Jesus. But the crowds were also responsible. You see, the characters in this story embody the same sin and rebellion that exists today in our hearts. The crowd was calling out to Pilate to crucify him. And I like what C.J. Mahaney says about this. He says, I identify most with the angry mob screaming crucify him. He says that's who we should all identify with. Because apart from God's grace, this is where we would all be standing. And we're only flattering ourselves to think otherwise. Unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred to the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. You see, the cross is the key. The cross is significant, not just because of physical suffering, but because of spiritual realities. And there are depths that would take a lifetime to explore. But really, when you study the cross, it boils down to three words. Substitution, meaning Jesus died our death. Propitiation, Jesus endured our condemnation. Reconciliation, Jesus suffered our separation. These three words cover it all. Jesus substituted himself for us. His life for mine. Jesus in my place. He died the death that I deserve. Propitiation, he endured the condemnation, the wrath that is really for me. Reconciliation, he reconciled himself with the Father. He suffered our separation. You see, the cross is the centerpiece. It is the key that unlocks the empty tomb. Before the cross, we were cast out of God's presence. But because of the cross, we are now invited into his presence. And because Jesus took my place, what we see in chapter 28 is that Jesus victoriously, we, we had the video earlier, that Jesus victoriously conquered death. He defeated death when he rose from the grave. No man, no woman in history has ever defeated death in that way. Yes, people have been resuscitated. They have been revived, but they have never resurrected themselves. But Jesus Christ didn't just, he wasn't just resuscitated. He wasn't just revived. He spent three days in that tomb. And on the fourth day, he arose victoriously. He took our place. And because of that, what we see today, if you trust him as your savior, is that Jesus is alive in me. And I am thankful for that. He is alive in me. All of history revolves around this scene. 
And our lives will be determined based on how we respond to this scene. You see, you must respond to the cross. You must respond to the cross. Two things in our response. We must surrender our heart to God. Meaning that if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you must surrender and say, you know what, Jesus? I trust you. I believe you. I believe that you died in my place, that you took my place. Surrendering our heart is saying, you know what? I'm giving up control of my life and trying to control my destiny. When you have already determined my destiny, but what I must do is surrender to you. You see, we must surrender our heart to God, but then second thing, if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior, if we have received the free gift of salvation, you know what we're supposed to do? Proclaim the hope of the gospel. The story doesn't end on Easter. In reality, it's just the beginning for us. That's when Jesus, after he rose from the grave, he met with his disciples and his followers, many of them who had rejected him and, and had betrayed him and, and were, were guilty and ashamed of what they had done. But he repurposed them. He gave them a new commission. And he said, go, take the hope of the gospel into the world because I'm not dead, I am alive. And I am alive in you. You see, Matthew helps us see ourselves in relation to the crucifixion. Jesus didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. And the essence of the gospel is summed up in four words. Jesus in my place. That's it. A simple yet challenging message today, but I want us to understand this. That Jesus took our place. And if you're here today and you never trusted him as your savior, I pray that today might be the day that you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. There is no one that is good enough to enter into heaven without Jesus. We need a savior. We need a savior who willingly submitted himself to this death. And he did all of that for us. And we must surrender our heart to Jesus. Forgive me. Save me of my sin. And if you've done that, then one day as that thief on the cross, you will be received into your paradise. Not paradise, Texas, but paradise. God has a place for us. And if you're saved, understand that you have a job. That Jesus is alive in you. Understand all that he went through. He anguished for you. He was beaten, betrayed by you. He suffered for you. He was mocked by you and ridiculed by you. But if you're saved today, he is alive in you and he has given you a job to do. Jesus took your place so that you can proclaim the gospel to others. Let's pray.